Good afternoon. Welcome to Mad Hat Economics. I'm Jackie Stein, and as always, I'm here with Professor David Just. Hello. And today we have a very special guest star. His name is Roberto Figueri. You may be familiar. He's the founder of Mad Hat Economics, and he's tuning in with us all the way from Nairobi, Kenya. Welcome, Roberto. Hello, Jackie. Hello, David. Thanks for having me in the podcast today. And thank you for doing that lovely introduction. (laughs) Thank you. We really appreciate you joining us and coming, you know, setting aside some time to to reminisce um, over behavioral <laughs> economics. Roberto- welcome back. <laughs> well, welcome back. So Roberto does something very interesting in Nairobi. He is an associate at the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. And the Busara Center is a development economics nonprofit organization that helps do behavioral economics testing and interventions to help research efforts and um, development efforts. Um, Roberto, what can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Busara Center and what attracted you coming from Cornell's um, behavioral economics program and hosting this podcast? Sure. So a little bit about Busara is that we're a research and advisory organization. It first started out in 2012-2013. We were a research lab here in Nairobi. So the idea was that researchers such as David would run their studies here because a lot of the studies around behavioral economics, behavioral science and psychology in general, they all have this problem that they are all done in the US. So you're dealing with people that are Western, industrialized, well-educated. And the truth is that that's not how the majority of people are, right? So we're making generalizations. You read in the newspaper like, oh, people behave like this, humans behave like this. But the truth is that the majority of these studies are just made with students, with college students, and or with people from the US. And that's not really generalizable, right? Because you have people in Africa, in Asia, Latin America, we all behave differently. And the context matters. So that's one. So that's why we started. And then after a while of doing lab experiments, um, we also realized that there was a demand for advisory services. So in 2014, 2015, we started an advisory arm. So we work with the World Bank and other other nonprofit organizations as well. So that's the first part of Busara. And then why was I attracted to it? Well, so I was attracted for, I think, a couple of reasons. Let's talk about two main reasons. The first one is that, well, I did the MPS in Cornell. So I was interested in in behavioral economics, behavioral science from a while back. And Busara offered me the opportunity to actually keep working in this space. Which, first of all, there's not a lot of, of companies that offer that opportunity, right? There's a couple in the U.S. that are big enough to, to, do, to do work in different locations and with different companies. But I wouldn't say those are the majority. Um, and the second thing is that I grew up in Latin America. So with Busara being based in Africa... It was very interesting to me, right? Because I can see how things work in Africa and I was also in the US before. So then I was going to get the opportunity to get a better understanding of how people behave in different contexts. And it was not going to be something that I was going to read in the newspaper, but it was something that I was going to be interacting directly with. Huh? So it's an adventure. <laughs> yeah, it's, it has been an adventure. It's been very interesting being here. Um, very different from what I was expecting, to be honest, um, at least when I came here. Um, but it has been very good. It has been a very enriching, a very enhancing and ex- experience. And I think it's allowed me to develop pretty, pretty good and, and, and be a more uh, well-rounded individual while doing this, right? I've done some projects in Kenya, in Tanzania, Ghana, 
and as Gusar expands, also the scope of my work will will expand. It will expand. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with in, in the developing world and how that is really different from the experiments here? Can you can elaborate on the difference in testing with um, people in this context versus college students, and, <laughs> and maybe some differences that you've noticed? Sure. Um, so a couple of things. I particularly don't work a lot in the lab, so I do more advisory work, so what we usually do as RCTs. But let's talk a little bit about um, an experience I had in the US actually with David. Um, but it's this thing that we did with, with Feeding America. So they have these food pantries and they are trying to figure out how to get people to eat healthier. Right. So here, this was this is a nonprofit. They already have their structure. What they really needed help with how do we nudge people to do X, Y, Z, to achieve the behavior that we want? Here, yeah, people still want that. But then what we also find a lot is that we also end up developing the products that we're testing on uh, for, for different reasons, right? It might be sometimes it's the company that we're working with and doesn't want to experiment directly on their platform because they are not, they don't feel super comfortable in how that's going to affect. Because I mean, with experiments, you might actually get the behavior that you want, but then you might not get it, right? Actually, you might move it um, towards an opposite direction that's not of interest. Um, so in those cases, we, we end up building our own products, right? And then experimenting with the population that we want to, that we want to target these products. So, so for instance, one example in Tanzania, well, so, so first thing, uh, most, a lot of the things that we do are around communication. And a lot of these are with, with mobile phones. Now, the thing is that in the US, I don't know the statistics, but my guess would be that at least 50% of the people that live in the US have smartphones. Um, in Africa, in particular in Tanzania, it's not the case. Almost no one has a, has a smartphone, right? So we were creating a savings, a savings device. We we're, were, were working to understand better savings behaviors. So if we were in the US, um, and maybe want to help people save, what we would do is, yes, yeah, send messages to try to get people onboarded into the product, but then also what would work very well is presumably to do an app. Because with an app, you can track the progress and you can give daily updates or maybe monthly updates, right? And everything has very nice letters and very nice charts. Now, operating in the context that we are operating in, and that's not possible, right? So we have to rely in SMS messages. So we need to get a little bit creative on what do, what can we fit in 160 characters. Um, so it's a little bit different, right? There are some constraints. That's that's one. What can we send and what are the mediums? But then the other one is on the products, right? We end up developing a lot of the products that we're going to test within. And then with that, then we go to the client and give recommendations. Um, so that's, that's a little bit on that end. Interesting. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about the work that you were just mentioning, mobile saving promotion, and, and M-Pesa is um, very w- widely used in Kenya. Can you tell us about Busara's, uh, you know, impact with M-Pesa? Sure, sure, sure. Um, so it's a very interesting thing, right? When I came here, I didn't know what M-Pesa was. Like, I had read about it, but I didn't know. But, mm-hmm. but, but trust me, it's like magic. Like in two seconds, you can transfer money from your bank account to your phone, and then you have you have money in your phone, and that's that's how I pay Ubers, that's how I pay in restaurants, I have that's how I pay my groceries. So ideally, I don't even need my wallet to do anything. It's just bank to my phone, and from my phone, I send money. So what is this? Um, it's not only in Pesa, but it's a thing called Mola money, and it's not only in Africa, but in Kenya, but it's in 
in all Africa and it's also starting in some countries in Latin America and some, some countries in Asia such as India, Malaysia, I think also has their form of moral money. Um, so what is this and what do I think is the motivation behind this? So the first thing is that not a lot of people have access to bank accounts because, well, banks don't want to engage with customers um, that presumably don't have enough money to put in their accounts. The other thing is that in a lot of rural areas, you won't see banks. What you would see would be savings groups. Um, so then people don't have access to credit. So what the mall money operators, what the mall, what the mall network operators, let's say AT&T, Verizon, um, Sprint, realized were like, okay, so not everybody has access to financial services and not everybody has access to money. But what do people do a lot is they send money from, for instance, from Nairobi, the capital, to Western Kenya. That's about eight hours. How do people do that? Normally they do it with Western Union or they give the money to a driver and the driver goes and delivers it there. But as you can see, if you give money to a driver, the driver might not deliver. And if you send money with Western Union, people, I mean, th there's a huge charge associated. So then this thing of the mall money started, I know, I know I'm, I'm not, I know I'm going in a rant, but, but let, let me try to, to get it back um, on, a, on a clear line of thought. But with this idea of, remit of remittances, what this, the mall money operators realized, um, and, and precisely mainly in Kenya, because there's only one big one, which is called Safaricom, is that they had the monopoly on the mall money on the mall network services. So, and they also knew that a lot of people were not um, available to use banks or have, have access to financial services. So they developed this tool, mall money. So what is this? You give money, you can move money from a bank to your mall money account, but some people don't have money, so some people don't have bank accounts. So what else can they do? They also made each vendor, like for instance, small stores, which are called, here called Dukas, they also made them agents. So what happens is that I go to one of these agents and I give money to them and they put it automatically in my mall money account. So now I have money. And now I can send money across Kenya. I can send money to my friends, I can pay restaurants, I can buy things with this. So this, I think, started in Kenya around 2007, but then it has expanded. And a lot of businesses work using mall money. So for instance, there's a lot of businesses on pay as you go. I don't know if you have heard about a company called Mcopa, but what they do is that they offer a pay as you go solar energy. So they put a panel, a solar panel in your house with a battery and you have two light bulbs and I think you also, and, and then you can also charge your phones. But then how do you pay for this? So you give a deposit and then you pay every day, you pay 50 cents. Now, if these guys had agents everywhere in the country, they couldn't manage because money would get lost. It would be a big cost of having agents receiving money. But what there is small money. So what these people do is that from their rural locations, their remote locations, they send money all the way to Nairobi. They send money to a bank account. They send, mo they send money to a mall money number. And that's how they pay. And a lot of businesses across Africa, not only in solar, but you can see solar, you can see water, you can even see education services, work under this premise of mall money. So actually mall money in, in Africa and in Asia and in other countries is enabling a totally different way of doing business. And it's providing a different way to scale of businesses. Yeah, it almost solves some of the, the just physical problems of money mm -hmm. that have existed for thousands of years. Definitely, and something interesting to consider is that for instance, here in Kenya, the highest currency is a thousand shillings, which is about $10. 
right? In the US, you have $100. So imagine if you're carrying a lot of money, but that's in Kenya. In Tanzania, the highest currency is the equivalent of $5. So just imagine all the money that you would have to carry around. Another interesting thing um, that I learned when I was in Tanzania is that some companies, actually, if you're working remotely, if you're working in a mine, or if you're working, well, if you're working in a mine, for instance, in these locations where mines exist, there's no banks. What they used to do was to send a truck full of cash. And then that would go from the capital to the location. And then a lot of things can happen with the truck. So now what they are actually doing is that they are paying their employees, they are paying them by mobile money. Super simple, no transaction of physical cash, and then everybody takes it. So it's pretty good. It's a very interesting solution. It's a very different way Absolutely. Um, to think about solving problems, which is another reason why, why, why I think it's nice to be here, because you start seeing different problems um, that I didn't see in the US, but you see how these guys come up with different solutions, with creative solutions. Okay, so I was, I'm curious, um, or I think our listeners are curious, can you give us an example of how behavioral economics has either helped with the M-PESA um, advancement or an other advancement in development? Is there a specific problem or, or a specific project that you worked on um, that you can kind of talk a little bit about and, and what behavioral economics tools you use and how you were able to test and see it, how effective it was. So for instance, okay, so a lot of the projects that I've been involved in are in FinTech. So financial, financial technology and financial inclusion. So one of the projects that, that I was in was with increasing savings in mobile money. So people here, um, what they do is that when they, so there's different, so this, this is also interesting, which is how do you conceptualize savings? What are savings? What do you think about when I tell you, oh, do you save money? Mm -hmm. So I used to think it was putting money in a bank or investing in stocks or maybe putting it under your mattress. What was interesting to me was that, well, yeah, it's all of that, but then it's also buying a goat or also buying a wall. Okay because building a, a wall in your house. So why is that? Um, so, mm -hmm. so one thing that happens is, the, and it's quite common, you ask people around and they tell you um, that when they have money, everybody in their family knows that they have money. So everybody goes and asks them for money. So then you might have $100 and by the end of the week, you, at the beginning of the week, you have $100 and by the end you don't have any anything. So how do, you, how do you fight that back? Well, you maybe buy a goat. I mean, a goat is a little bit, it's less liquid than cash. And if you really, really want to commit to saving, you build a wall in your house. So, I mean, if you're trying to expand your house, let's say that you're trying to build a bigger house, maybe you don't have money to build um, the whole room at once. What do you do is that you put it in, in, a, in a wall or you start building a piece of a room because that's really not liquid. That's not easy to, to get it back. Um, so we were trying to compete with these mediums, but more than that, we we're trying to, to see how we can enable, how, how we could use small um, money platforms and messaging to increase saving towards small money platforms. So what we did is that we created an experiment. So we created our own construct and we developed our own products. So the construct here was that we were trying to simulate a work day for an informal worker. Sometimes these guys get work, sometimes they don't. Also, when they get it, they don't know exactly how much they are gonna get paid. It's, it's, it's variable, right? Someday you might get paid more to do one thing and, and then you do a different thing the different day and you get paid differently. So 
we created a construct in which we told participants, hey, you have to do this effort task, and the effort task was sending a message at a specified time, and it varied for everyone. And we told you at the beginning, uh, so one day before, we, we send you a message like, hey, Jackie, please do this. Please send us a message at this time. And then if people did it, then we paid them. If people didn't do it at that time, we paid them a little bit less. And then if people didn't do it past a certain point, um, then we didn't pay them. Mm. So, so we knew who was getting paid and who was not getting paid. There was also a component which was random income, random shocks, random income shocks, and there was random expense shocks. So then once you had your money, we asked you like, hey, Jackie, would you like to keep this money in a savings account, in a savings product that we built? Like it pays this amount of interest, these are the characteristics. Or would you like to consume this money? And if you wanted to consume it, then we send it to your number and then this money is yours to keep. Okay, so that was the basic construct of the experiment. And we ran this for, I think, 30 days. So where did behavioral science came in? In the messaging. Okay, so we started playing with different types of messages. We allocated different people to different groups. So it was an, an RCT, one control arm, and then four treatment arms. And the treatment arms were with loss aversion, like, hey, if you, like, hey, if, if you don't save to, um, today with us, you're missing out on this and this extra amount that you would get if you would put the money with us today. Hey, if you save, um, this, is, this is better, um, you would have more control over your life, right? So trying to target a little bit of agency on the one before trying to tag a little bit on loss aversion. The, um, another message was like, hey, um, you told us that you wanted to save for this thing, like you, you were, you, so basically what this was, was a commitment, was not a commitment savings account, it was more like a goal savings account. So people were like, hey, I want to save to pay for my children's schooling. So then we send you a message like, hey, Jackie, you said you wanted to save for this, and please keep, please save this money with us, because this is going to get you to that point where you want to be. And a different message was a little bit about social norms, which was um, like, hey, uh, hey Jackie, so about so people similar to you are depositing money um, on the, on this account, right? And and we knew who was similar to you because um, we onboarded people in groups and people knew they were in groups. So so in the groups, the exercise was that everybody had to introduce themselves and and tell us what they did, what what they do for a living, and where they lived, where are they from, right? To get us a sense of social networks, um, that to, to get a sense that hey, these people are similar to me. So then we ran this for about thirty days, um, and then we analyzed the results. It came up to be that the people that saved in the social norms condition tend to save, I think, 20% more than other people. Now, this wasn't like statistically significant at 0.5, but I think it was, I, I, I don't recall exactly the number. I know it wasn't at 0.5, but it wasn't, I mean, but, but it wasn't like in the, in the 0.4 or anything like that. Which is our significance range. So then this is useful for, for companies that we can work with because even though if this is not um, significantly in a scientific way, it's still useful for a company that's trying to make foreign business decisions, you know? I think that anything that gives you more than 50-50, it's, it's good advice. So I know that was a little bit long, but I hope that it kind of like painted the picture and how we use behavioral science and communication and how that integrated well with the mobile money platforms that we were seeing. This is a nice contrast with the, the last podcast we did, mm-hmm. where, I, I mean, essentially, science is not always going to be the best way to go about making business decisions, right? Because it it is a little bit slower and 
your information just isn't tight enough, isn't going to be definitive enough mm-hmm. to be absolutely sure. Right. And you still need to move ahead. So it's, I, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So a quick question about the, the results. You found that social norms were more important as an impactor, but you also mentioned that you used a loss aversion frame, which is yep. um, in, in your treatment group testing. Mm-hmm. If you don't save, you'll lose this much money or if you, yep. you'll, which would have gone towards your goal of, so you're losing out. So yep. did that have an impact? The loss aversion frame have an impact and did it compared to the, the social norm and if it was a smaller impact or null, why do you think so? Is it maybe because there wasn't as much physical reception of, of, of the money? What are your thoughts on that? So a couple of things. Um, maybe it was about the physical money, I, but I, I think that more interesting than that is, is the following, right? I don't recall exactly how the message was crafted, but I would, I would think it was in absolute value. So this is what happened when you talk to people. And I was in Ghana last week. Well, no, actually this week I came, I came to Nairobi like 12 hours ago. So I was talking with one guy who works in the financial inclusion sector. He, he used to work a lot with mobile money. So, so we know that people don't understand percentages, right? We, we know that that's a hard concept to grab. To grab. What he was telling me is like, look, um, I don't think that the rates that we charge for withdrawals or for sending money are important. I think that people are like, there's no, there's not a lot of price sensitivity, right? So, for instance, if you send me a hundred dollars, um, I keep one dollar for me, right? And one dollar is a small amount. If you send me ten thousand dollars then 1% of 10,000 is $100. And $100, I mean, it's still 1%, but it's but in absolute terms, it's money. So I think that what happened here is that we were paying about $6 per day to people that did the task correctly. No, we're paying them about $2 per day. But I mean, it's pretty significant if you consider that it was only an effort test that took you like five minutes at most. So then that's one thing, $2 all in all, I mean, it's not very big in absolute terms. And then even if you put it in an account and we give you 10% of interest, that's 20 cents. I mean, it is, it's not big. It's not, it's not, it seems that right. it's not a big enough amount to make people think like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving a lot of money in the, in the table, right? Right. Um, because people, people don't, don't get percentages. What people get are absolute, absolute numbers. <laughs> um, so I think that's, I, that would be my hypothesis of why maybe the loss aversion frame didn't work that well. Right. Yeah. And maybe more need for the money, the money on hand. Is there anything in that respect that you would think, like just not having the luxury of being able to save every all of the money? So what do you mean by that? So do you mean that if I were to give you the money and then I ask you like, hey, do you want to give it back to me and then you save? Is that what you mean by that? Or no, I'm, I'm like more um, leaning towards how people need the money because they're, they may have more poverty and they need to make payments or um, they're living more paycheck to paycheck or depending on the year even and the job held by the the participants. Maybe they, they're farmers and it's an off year and they might need the money. Is that, did you see any of that in your analysis or in, in the... So I don't know, um, I, like, yeah, presumably everybody, so we were dealing with low-income people, so presumably everybody had similar constraints. Um, now, the scarcity. That yeah. might have been the case, but still, people that were in the social norms treatment, um, they saved more. So, so I mean, so we, we took care that our, we, we made sure that our groups were balanced, and fortunately they were. So no, I, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe people were cash-strapped and they needed cash. 
but still like on the other treatment which were presumably similar people um, they still were saving more so so yes I mean it affects but I mean still you you see that there's a difference by treatment I don't know if that answers your question so Roberto, I got I got a couple questions for you, um, sort of big, big picture questions. Here you found that people are responding to social norms, developing country context. We see a lot of experiments in in the developed world that use social norms effectively. What do you think the big differences are in trying to apply behavioral economics in a developing country context versus versus uh, the developed world? So, so just going back to one thing that I was saying before is that in the developed world, most of the times you're experimenting on a product that's well developed. In the developing world, you're most of the times, besides experimenting on a product, you're also trying to to create the product on itself, right? Like, oh, I have an idea of this, but but maybe maybe those are not the best practices, right? So I think that's one that's one big thing. Because, um, for instance, in the U.S., most of the things work efficiently. So then, so then you, you nudge people to do. Um, X, Y, Z, right? But then here, um, many things maybe don't work efficiently. Um, you have a product that's that's good, but it could be better. So then you try to improve the product, and then once you improve that, then you try to experiment. So then it's not that straightforward as just like, let me overlay these interventions on this product that's already working well, let's see how, what, what works. But it's like, let me let me try to do something with this product, which, it, which on itself is an experiment, and on top of that, let me overlay some interventions and let's see what happens. So, so I was actually wondering, though, uh, on the other side, if, if you notice any differences in the way people behave uh-huh. between the, the developing country context and, and the developed world. So, so can, you, can you give me a little bit more, more, more detail? Because um, I have a couple of ideas, but I don't know if this would answer the question. I've been involved. I should. I didn't actually collect the data, but I've been doing some experiments in school lunches in uh, in Ethiopia and and Nigeria, and it's it's really interesting to see that because it's it's completely different from what you would expect in the U.S. Where here, where where you know, if we want to get kids to to eat some food that's sort of foreign to them, we make it sound cool. Okay. We get it sound just like you know, Superman, yeah. exciting. Yeah. And, and when we were in Ethiopia or, or Nigeria, you've got to communicate it on a kid's level still. But the things that really get into the, you know, get into their head that they really enjoy is saying this is going to make you successful at school. Hmm. Right. And it's just bizarre. Yeah, they're like good motivations is what we would like our kids here to, to, we, to we motivate. Wish, yes, we wish they it, wanted to be good at school. They wanted to eat for brain power, but that's excellent. I mean, they're great norms. So let me tell you one, one thing on the, on, the, on the kids going to school. It's a big, very big theme here. I've seen it in Ghana, I've seen it in Kenya, which is that you ask people, parents, like, hey, what, what do you want to save money? Or, I mean, what would you like to do that you can't do right now? And they're like, I want my kids to go to school. Like, that's a big priority in people's minds. Like, I want my kids to go to school. That's, for instance, I'm from Latin America, and I, and I don't see that people value education as much as they do here in, in, in the places that I've been in Africa. That's one. Um, another thing with getting people to eat different things, so I don't know, I would be interested in seeing what you saw in Ethiopia. Bosara has projects in Ethiopia. I haven't gone to Ethiopia, but what I what I know about Ethiopia is that if you're outside Addis Ababa, which is the capital, people just eat their staples. They are not gonna eat anything else. Like they are very happy eating injera every day. 
um, with vegetables, like they are super happy doing that and then and they, and they love their local staples. For instance, um, I know that in Uganda as well, like US people like, hey, do you want to eat pizza? They're like, no, no, I want to eat Ugadi. Like, I mean, like middle income, like, let's put it like this, like lower income people, they, they like their staples. And even if you're going to offer to pay for them, the other stuff, they are, no, they are happy to eat what they know and they are happy that way. So, so yeah, so, so actually on, on that point, David, what, what did you see in Ethiopia? The people switch, what, what about that? What, what do kids do? That's interesting. Huh, yeah, we should probably, we should probably follow up on that at some point. Right, see if it, <laughs> what pizza will, how they'll respond to pizza and unhealthy food. It'll Try, be interesting. Trying to get kids to eat pizza. That's yeah. like, that sounds right. like a foreign concept. But even, even, yeah, without the social norm aspect, seeing how they feel about it and what their connotations, if they push back and say, I, no, like they, they're already familiar with healthy foods. I don't believe you. <laughs> so do you have another question, David? Yeah, I guess um, my other question is just where you see the opportunities. Mm. Um, you know, where, where we have a, here we're running a, an MPS program where we have a lot of students who are, are looking at becoming, you know, professional behavioral economists. Are there, you know, do you really think behavioral economics can have a bigger impact in, in this sort of developing country policy context or even business context? Is it something where, you know, it's just as likely to have an impact there as it is in, in a developed country? That's, that's very interesting. So a couple of things. Um, first one, I'm going back to one point that I think I have been making, which is you, actually, you have to start developing products. If um, there's a lot of behavioral scientists going into the developing world, what you're gonna see is that you're gonna start seeing behaviorally informed products. So it's not just gonna be best practices or what works best, but also ingrained in the products, you're gonna have behavioral science, which is great. Because since there's some things that, are, that don't exist here yet, some services that don't exist yet, you have the opportunity of building them from the ground up. So that's one. Two, it depends what do you wanna use behavioral science for? So do you, do you wanna use it to get more people to buy things that might make profits? Um, if, if that's the case, then, that, then the developing world might not be the best place. But if you want to use them to get kids sitting healthier in cafeterias or getting a more diverse diet, then, then that's great here. Because my guess, uh, and, I, and I don't know about this, but it would be that people in the, the developed world have more balanced diets. So there's presumably a little bit more need for that here. And, and the last one is, not on the impact first, but maybe second, but first on the science, is that if you start having more behavioral scientists in the developing world, you will have more people studying how the context impacts decisions. And that's interesting in itself. So for instance, if you were to have labs in each, in every country, you can start um, making, making hypotheses and, and making conclusions as well as what makes humans the same? Like, where are we similar? And where are we totally different? Because I don't think that right now we can we can say that uh, with certainty. So I think these three points, right? So products, what do you want to use it for? I mean, do you want to use it for, for, for things that you consider that are good? And the last one is, is for the science, right? To have better understanding of what makes us human in some way, which is what makes us the same and, and where, where, where do we view or where do we act different and what makes us act differently. Huh, that's a great point. I guess we're wrapping up soon, but 
Thank you so much for joining us, Roberto, and providing insight into behavioral economics in the developing world. Uh, This is a topic that we've been really keen on covering. And um, just as behavioral economics is going beyond the United States and developing world. So um, we're really glad to have you back on the show. And I know our listeners are probably excited to hear from you again. We, we hope you can you can join us again. Um, I This is actually my last episode, so um, I just want to say thank you to all our listeners and um, keep listening because there's going to be uh, a new host coming in from the MPS program um, started by, again, Mad Hat Economics is started by Roberto Figueri. He is with us today as our, our special guest star. <laughs> Roberto, thank you so, so much. No. Can you say, would you like to say goodbye or hello to our listeners <laughs> once again? No, no, no. So, so what, what I would like to say is first, thank you very much for inviting me, Jackie. It's been fantastic. Second is you run this way better than what I used to run it. Uh, so, so, so that, um, and I'm sure if, if somebody has been listening from the start and still lis- listens to it now, they can testify to that. So, so I'll just say that you have been doing a great job and, and hopefully the next person that comes can be, can, can do at least half, um, half the good job that you have done. Cause I do think Thank you, you have so, so much, job. Roberto. Yeah, maybe we'll both be on in the next, you know, in the future together again. <laughs> Thanks to both of you. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun for me as well. Thank you, David. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Liam. I want to say thank you, Liam. This Liam Wixdow is our producer and um, tech specialist and has gone above and beyond with recording. Um, everyone look forward to the new season of Mad Hat Economics um, with incoming behavioral economics students. Again, I'm Jackie Stein. I'm here with David Just and Roberto Figueri. Have a great weekend. Um, be sure to follow us on Twitter. Uh, we're trying to be more active. You can follow <laughs> us at Mad Hat Economics or send us an email if you have questions um, for any me, David, or Roberto. We'll be sure to get back to you. That's Mad Hat Econ at gmail.com. Take care, everyone.